18, I'll be reading uh, from verse 28 down to verse 37. People of God, this is the very Word of God. He's given it to us because He loves us. He's given it to build us up, to assure us that indeed His steadfast love endures forever. So let's hear it with care and gratitude. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Our Father and our God, we again seek the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon the preaching and hearing of your word. Lord, your word is truth, and your Son has prayed that we might be sanctified by it, and we find great confidence in the fact that his prayers for us are always answered. So we pray for a great outpouring of your Spirit this day, or that we might hear the voice of Christ, that we might be led to see his glory and cause to love him and worship him and adore him more. We pray all this for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Our theme for this morning comes right out of both of the texts that we read, looking on him whom we have pierced. The Bible repeatedly calls us to the focal point of our faith and life. There's one thing above all else that we must keep our eyes on. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.23 when he said, we preach Christ crucified. That was the focal point of his ministry. That is what he wanted the church to fix their gaze upon. He went on in 1 Corinthians 2 to tell them that when he came, he said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
That is to be the center of our gaze as the people of God. Now, I don't think any of you here this morning would, would dispute the fact that our focus must be the crucified and risen Christ. And yet, I think we all know too well that it's a sad fact that no matter where we turn, whether it's radio or television, the internet or social media, we find some self-proclaimed expert touting the cure for whatever problem we are facing. Whether it's anger, disobedient children, debt, lust, marital problems, depression, the list goes on. There's always someone right around the corner telling us that they have the answer. And how often we find ourselves frantically searching through these potential solutions, and what happens? Our eyes are drawn in a thousand different directions, and they're drawn away from the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we take time to examine these potential solutions to our problem, it's apparent from their mere proliferation that none of them can bring true change. We may find some temporary successes, but in the end, how often we find ourselves right back where we started. And that's because nothing that this world offers can change our hearts. And in the midst of all of these pseudo-solutions to our sin and our brokenness and our problems, there shines the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the Corinthians were very much like us. They were sinners. They were a mess. They needed to change. And from the beginning of his letters, Paul seeks to fix their gaze on the crucified and risen Christ. The only thing that can bring true, genuine, lasting hope and joy and change to our lives. And that's what the Apostle John calls us to in his account of the crucifixion. With an Old Testament reference, he notes the fulfillment of Zechariah 12, 10. And as he notes that, we really have a call that we cannot ignore. You heard how we're told that Jesus' legs were not broken, fulfilling one prophecy. And then we are told that a soldier pierced his side, thus fulfilling another prophecy. John writes, and again another scripture says... They will look on him whom they have pierced. And friends, what we need to grasp this morning is that the they in that passage is you and it's me. This is a call to every person, a call to all of us this morning to look upon the one whom we have pierced. This is to be our focus. 
We are being invited to take a long, perceptive gaze at the crucified Christ. And when we go to that passage that John references in Zechariah 12, when we look at the broader context, the context from which Tom read, we learn that our gaze is a twofold gaze. It's a gaze that has two aspects, or two steps. We learn that there is first a necessary painful step of grief and mourning, and yet that first painful step gives way to a joyful step of faith and adoration and hope in the risen Christ. Today we are to look upon him whom we have pierced. And that gaze has those two aspects, and the first that we see is that we first must look and mourn. Friends, we need to remember that we're not mere bystanders in the gospel accounts. In other words, the Holy Spirit wants us to see ourselves in these accounts, and, and a, a clue to that is the fact that, have you ever noticed in the Gospels how many people Jesus interacts with that remain nameless? We're being invited to see ourselves in these people. And so when John writes, they will look on him whom they have pierced, that means every person who reads John's testimony, including all of us here today, are looking for the one whom we have pierced. John has borne witness. He has put the crucified Christ before us this morning. And we could say that that prophecy of Zechariah 12.10 is still meeting its fulfillment as people from all tribes and nations and tongues... Look upon Christ and believe. But if you're filling in the blanks, here, here is your first one. As the crucified Christ is put before us and we gaze upon him, we are first of all shown that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. We are more sinful than we could ever imagine. You see, the cross puts before us the ugly truth of our sin. With brutal honesty, the cross shows us our guilt and it shows us how we are powerless to do anything about it. Like a blunt object, the cross hits us with the soul-crushing reality of who we are and what we have done. It testifies to us that we are sinners and rebels who have sinned against a holy and righteous God. That devastating truth, as Zechariah writes, should produce in us a deep sorrow. A deep of a sorrow. Zechariah tells us a sorrow like we would mourn if our own child died. 
Listen to the graphic and disturbing language of Zechariah 12.10. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Friends, that is the first step in coming to Christ for salvation. This is the first step if we are going to grow in grace and righteousness and overcome sin in our life. The cross shows us that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. But along with that and related to that, secondly, as we gaze upon the crucified Christ, we must see that it was our willful sin that pierced our Savior. We must see that it was our willful sin that pierced our Savior. And there is a, a very interesting nuance in the Hebrew word that's translated pierced. And you may have heard in Zechariah, you'll notice that God is the one who was pierced. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. In Leviticus 4, we find an interesting use of this word, where the Hebrew verb to pierce is actually translated blaspheme. You have that text in your outline, but that's... That's interesting. We read of this Israelite woman's son, how he blasphemed or pierced the name and cursed. And so to pierce God's name means to profane his name, to blaspheme him, to treat him with contempt. And what is blasphemy in the sense that we read of in the Gospels? It's Putting yourself in the place of God. And the point of this little nuance is that the penalty for such a sin is death. That every one of us, by our sin and our faithlessness, by putting ourselves in the place of God, has blasphemed his name. It was no coincidence then that our Savior was charged with what? Blasphemy. See, we are being invited to see our guilt and our shame being heaped upon our Savior. And that means we need to take a long, perceptive look at Christ and First, let our hearts be broken into pieces. We must first have that deep, heart-rending sorrow over our sin, which caused the precious Son of God to be pierced. Friends, when we realize our sin and we look upon the one whom we have pierced, there can really only be one response to this devastating truth. We must mourn. 
We must mourn. Zechariah writes, When they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. There can be no salvation. There can be no true growth in grace, no victory over sin without this first painful step. How did Jesus begin his preaching ministry? He began it with the Sermon on the Mount and the first two sentences out of his mouth were blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. We must first see the cross through our tears. And this godly mourning is a sorrow over our sin. Zechariah foresaw a time when there would be this deep, heart-rending sorrow on the part of sinners who would come to the conviction that they had violated God's law, that they had sinned against Him. Friends, this reminds us of a truth that we are so prone to forgive. The Christian is not someone who has their life together. The Christian is not someone who has arrived. The true Christian is someone who is grieved and mourns over their sin. Jesus said that it is this disposition that results in blessing and comfort. What I want you to listen for, or if you're in Zechariah, I want you to notice how this mourning is a grace. In other words, it's, it's, it's not something that comes naturally to us. It's not something that we produce. It is a gracious work of the Spirit in us. There is two simple words that underline this for us. God says, I will. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. This is something that God, by His Spirit, works in us at salvation, and yet it's something that we need to continually cultivate in the Spirit's power all our life. That sorrowful sensitivity to our sin prompted by a long, attentive gaze at the one whom we appears. A God-centered warning. And friends, it is the heartbreaking that as we look at the church in our country, in our nation, what is one of the things that has done great damage to our testimony, to our witness? It's the fact that we have given the impression to the watching world that we are people who have our lives together. 
and that you just need to get your life together like us. Our witness would be so much more powerful if to the world we modeled that humility, that poverty of spirit, that mourning over our sin. Friends, we all need to ask ourselves this morning, do I really mourn over my sin? Does sin really grieve me and cause me distress and sorrow? When I look upon the crucified Christ, when we come together on the Lord's Day and you hear your pastor proclaim Christ and Him crucified, does it lead you to mourn over your sin? Or is your tendency to a finger pointing out there at everyone else? Friends, the promise is this sorrow leads to real, tangible repentance. It's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7 when he said, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leaves salvation and leaves no regret. Thomas Watson memorably and eloquently wrote this. He said, view sin in the red glass of Christ's suffering. The least sin costs the price of blood. Would you take a true prospect of sin? Go to Golgotha. Jesus Christ willingly veiled his glory and gave up his joy and poured out his soul as an offering for the least sin. Read the greatness of your sin in the deepness of Christ's wounds. The Spirit of God is a spirit of warning. Let us pray that God would pour out His Spirit of grace upon us, whereby we may look upon Him whom we have pierced and mourned God must breathe in His Spirit before we can breathe out our sorrows. And as tears flow out, comfort flows in. God keeps the best wine till last. First, he prescribes mourning for sin, and then sets out the wine of consolation. You see, what, he, what Watson is getting at there is the mourning produces something. The mourning is not the end point. This godly grief leads to salvation and comfort. And that means our looking in mourning will cause us to look upon the one whom we have pierced in faith. And so secondly, that second joyful step is you must look and believe. See, the twin messages of the cross are that yes, you are far more sinful than you can ever imagine. There is also the glorious assurance that you are welcomed 
by your heavenly Father in his beloved Son. You're filling in your blanks. This is the, the, the first one under the second point. See, we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine. But a long gaze at the cross at the same time assures you that you are more loved than you could ever imagine. Isn't that amazing that the same gaze that breaks us into pieces and causes us to mourn will then assure us of the everlasting, unchangeable love of God for us in Jesus Christ? Well, the cross provides the greatest proof of our sin, and at the same time provides the greatest proof is love for you. <clears throat> this is where the true mourning leads. Comfort, hope, forgiveness, assurance of his love. I want you to listen to Zechariah 13.1. Here's where the mourning leads. On that day, that's the same day of the morning. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You see, the same day of mourning will bring a fountain of cleansing and forgiveness and joy and hope. Long gaze the crucified Christ will assure us that we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And we are assured of that. We see evidence of that secondly in the fact that as we look upon the cross, we're reminded that our Savior was willingly pierced for our willful sin. Our Savior was willingly pierced for our willful sin. Well, it was our willful, deliberate sin that pierced our Savior. Jesus was no victim. He willingly and deliberately laid down his life for you because he loves you. We heard it in our call to worship that he would be pierced Willingly for our transgressions. Jesus said in John 10 that no one would take his life from him, but he would lay it down of his own accord. You need assured of Christ's love for you. You need to meditate on that fact. That Jesus' life was not taken from him, but it was given by him. We read how Jesus dies with authority, with, with a deliberate focus. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. With an intimate knowledge of you, and all of your sin and all of your rebellion against 
him, Jesus, with a focused determination and a heart of love, stood in your place and handed over his sinless life to his Father for you. Does that assure you of his love for you today? And there can only be one response to this glorious gospel truth, and that is finally you must believe. Your gaze upon Christ must be a look of faith. That's what John calls us to. He says he is born witness. Why? So that you also may believe. Some of you here may need to believe for salvation. You may need to take that, that first necessarily painful step of being utterly broken and mourning over your sin. And yet know that there is a Savior. There is a Savior that calls out the poor and needy and weary sinners and he promises salvation. I would guess that most of you need to believe for your sanctification, for your growth in grace, for victory over sin. And here again, we are reminded this is not a matter of works, but of faith. That you need the pierced Savior to take center stage and drown out all those other things that are grabbing your gaze. The anger, the lust, the anxiety, the, the self-reliance. This is why we need to hear the gospel over and over again. This is why the Lord has given us his day on the first day of the week. Because as one writer puts it, our souls are like a sieve, and the gospel leaks out, leaving only the husk of Christianity, my self-righteousness, and my obligations. We need to be captivated by something greater than our sin, the glorious crucified and risen Christ. With bad news, you're far more sinful than you can ever imagine. With good news, you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. Friends, we can't have that second comforting truth without first facing that painful truth of our sin. Listen again to the words of Zechariah. Note the great promise to those who mourn their sin and look to the Savior. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for me. On that day, the same day of mourning, 
God promises that there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and unholiness. Blessed are those who mourn, they will become. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your Son who was willingly pierced for us. And we know, O oh God, that as we leave this gathering and we'll begin our work weeks tomorrow, we know that the temptations are many, that our gaze is pulled in so many different directions. Lord, would you fix our eyes on the crucified and risen Christ? Or would you give us a deep, heart-rending sorrow over our sin? And yet, Lord, may you comfort us with the assurance of pardon, with the assurance of your love, with the unending mercy and grace that you seek to give to us. Lord, may you empower our witness by making us a morning humble people. The world may see in us sinners who have trusted in a great Savior. We thank you for Christ and Him crucified. Pray these things in His name and for His sake. Amen.